Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Soren Johnson. Soren is a legend in the gaming industry. He has made games that have sucked up more hours of my life than I care to admit. He was one of the designers of Civ 3 and the lead designer of Civ 4. That's Civilization, Sid Meier's Civilization, one of the most popular game brands of all time and one of the most popular instance of that brand. Um, we talk about what it's like to build these kinds of massive 4X games. He's also built his own uh, at his own company as founding Mohawk Games. He's worked on Dragon Age Legends. He talks about a lot of the process, not only for making these kinds of games and designing them, but also how players can optimize the fun out of these games and how you prevent them from doing that and how we can make these things be more accessible the power of having passionate players that can access your games and modding games and the power of modding and how that develops the process we honestly get so far into this conversation that we don't even get to like his current projects which is rare usually an hour and a half is enough to get through some the at least the highlights of somebody's career but there's so much deep dive in here that we've uh, committed to doing a part two so we have a lot of great pack content i first got to meet soren and really chat with with him as we prepared for the GDC when I gave a talk on Soulforge Fusion. He was one of the people that helped to set that talk up and helped to guide me. He's a great educator. He actually has his own podcast where he talks to a lot of other legends in the industry. So his podcast episodes go on for three or four hours. So you can see maybe mine are just too short, but uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm going to bring this one to you now and we will get you a part two soon. There's a lot of great lessons in here. So plenty to chew on while you wait for that part two. So without any further ado, here is Soren Johnson. Hello and welcome. I am here with Soren Johnson. Soren, it's really great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, so you know, we got to really interact uh, quite a bit in in recent months as uh, I was preparing uh, my talk for GDC uh, this year. You were a lo- uh, you know really great kind of mentor guiding through what uh, what to include and how to edit it and how to put it together. And you've been running that or advising. I don't know what exactly the the nature of the role, but kind of helping to curate the the speakers for that for for quite a while now. Is that right? Yeah, I've been on the board for about ten years. Um, and initially, it was just uh, you know the video game, video game stuff, video game design. Uh, that's what I tend to focus on. But I'd always wanted to uh, what uh, what, you, what Justin talked at was the uh, tabletop summit at the Game Developers Conference. You know, which is uh, typically it's it's focused on video games. Um, but video games and board games to me kind of feel like, uh, cousins awfully often, um, especially in the strategy game space, which is where I am and most of the time. Um, so, you know, we've tried to get more and more, uh, tabletop, um, designers to come talk, um, you know, about what they're doing and, you know, get some, some back and forth, um, which has so far, so far been good. It kind of got derailed by the pandemic, like everything else. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to get it back, you know, back where we wanted it to be. 
Yeah, it's really, you know, it's one of those things. Obviously, most of my background is with tabletop games. I've spent some time working on digital games and then some projects um, that are kind of living in both worlds, like Soulforge Fusion, which is what I talked about, where we're trying to, you know, build it for for both um, digital and physical. Um, and, you know, the overlaps in the, the fundamentals of design are, are, you know, pretty, pretty enormous, right? And in fact, I, I generally advise new designers to try to start, you know, start working on tabletop games kind of first to, to hone the craft because they're so much easier to iterate on and learn lessons on um, before moving into into digital games. Um, uh, and I don't know if you, you feel similarly or if it, there's, a, you know, kind of since you've been so involved in kind of helping curate the educational platforms for, for designers, how do you feel about for people that want to kind of learn the craft, what's their best on-ramp typically? Yeah, I, I do think board game design is a great place to start. Um, like I kind of... Um, I, it's not advice that I've really taken, um, because I kind of got, got lucky with my, my first, I was able to start on the civilization series, essentially my first job uh, at a college, uh, which was kind of like exactly what I wanted to work on. But yeah, I feel like I was always a little bit, a little bit jealous of, of board game designers, just in the sense that they're able to work on stuff, uh, more quick, so much, so much more quickly. Um, you know, they, I was, I don't remember. I, yeah, I've been listening through some of your podcasts and I think, I think it was, I don't know, it was Rob, I remember, I forget who it was, but you know, they're like, oh, this project took forever. It took almost two years, you know? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Yeah. And for me, that's like, oh man, I would love to be able to do something in two years. That sounds, that sounds wonderful. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, the, the, the scale of, 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 of work and effort and time and money and everything is like so different in the different worlds, but, um, well, let's, let's, since you've kind of referenced it, let's get into your origin story a little bit. So, you know, you've, you've worked on games, probably it's quite possible you've absorbed the most number of hours of my entire life. Uh, at the very least, you're a good (laughs) contender. You're a good contender for it. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk about like what your origin story is. And, and I really, I mean, I want to dive deep in some of the Forex worlds and so you're uh, a foremost expert on it. So, so yeah, let's, let's give some background to our listeners. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I grew up in the eighties, you know, playing, playing lots of, lots of video games, um, played a lot of Sid Meier's games. Um, so pirates, road tycoon civilization. Um, in fact, I think I bought civilization on like the, my very first week of college, uh, as a freshman. Um, I'm shocked that you graduated. (laughs) Yeah. Which was, which was maybe not, not the best, the best plan, but, uh, it all, it all worked out. And, uh, uh, and in college, I was a computer science history double major, um, and uh, and it kind of like so working on the Civil Series would have been the absolute perfect path for me if I had I have if I had thought of it at the time. It's it's just not the type of thing that would have been in my mind frame back then. Like if you asked me what I thought I was going to do, I wouldn't I probably wouldn't have had a good answer for you. I was interested in history. I was interested in in programming, sort of. I don't particularly enjoy programming. I just like being able to get computers to do things. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, there was I, one one thread you could see is like in pretty much all of uh, the classes I took at school, uh, I was always bending whatever I was doing so I could make some sort of a uh, some sort of a game, right? Um, so it's a graphics class. Like, oh, can I make like a Tron Light Cycles game if it's a uh, like uh, AI genetic algorithms class. I'm like, oh, can I make a little turn-based, you know, a battle game where the AI like learns over various iterations or kind of the biggest, the biggest stretch was for my, uh, my history, uh, for my history thesis project, like your senior project. Um, I made this uh, simulation 
of the life of a shopkeeper in early modern Oxford. Um, because I got to go over there <laughs> nice. for, for a quarter, do some, some research. And, you know, I made like a little, you know, life of, you know, life of a shopkeeper. You see the prices go up and down you manage your family, you manage the little local guild. And, um, yeah, you know, it was like, I was, you know, I was bending everything into some sort of game like format, but, you know, I, at the time I still wouldn't have known if it would have been possible to, make video games because I didn't know anyone who was, who made video games. I didn't really know how, how that happened. Um, and I do remember that, uh, I bought a lot of electronic arts games when I was a kid. Um, and I don't know if you remember what their, those games looked like back in the eighties, but they had like a certain aesthetic where they were trying to, um, kind of like, they're trying to basically put forward uh, game developers as kind of like the new rock stars. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was back when like a single person could make a video game, right. Or a couple people. So, you know, they would have like splashy photos and and the, the games themselves were, were packaged like um, uh, albums, right. Like the EA's uh, products look totally different from everyone else's because it like, you know, it literally looked like an album. You flipped it open and it had like really nice art, you know, like they'd really put some time into the presentation and that, you know, the floppy would be kind of like right there where the, where the, you know, the album would be normally. Um, And I remember on the back of it, it it had like a little thing saying like, uh, you know, I I don't know the exact words, but like, you know, if you're, if you're inspired to make video games, you know, send us a mess, you know, send us a line at, you know, this address in, you know, San Mateo, California. Right. And I was like, Oh wow. You know, I was like, okay. So that it, it, it exists, but it still seems like a stretch. And I went, you know, I went to school in the Bay area. So it was like right down the road. And it turned out that a friend of mine did have a, did do an internship. Uh, A guy named Jim Brooks did an internship at EA, uh, like the summer before. And so he was like, Hey, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they're always looking for, for new programmers. Um, and so I got my first, my first gig as an intern working on uh, a game called knockout Kings, which was a a boxing game. Um, and, uh, I didn't know anything about boxing. Uh, and, but you know, whatever, I just, I just was very, very excited to be, be, be there. And, uh, you know, I worked a little on AI. I worked a little on like the replay camera and just, you know, odds and ends, what the intern does. Um, but then I was like, okay, now I actually have like, you know, I've got a credit. This probably looks pretty good on the resume. So let's start sending them out. And at the same time, I was you know, starting to notice, you know, like starting to actually look around the industry, learning like, oh, okay, there's Ensemble in Texas that made the, make the Age of Empires games. That'd be pretty cool. I bet there's Black Isle down in LA. Um, you know, they, they make all these great RPGs, there's Blizzard, you know, all these different places that would be really cool to work for. Um, and then I saw that Civ 3 got announced, um, which was like, okay, that's a really cool project. And then, you know, maybe six months to a year later, it came out that the people who were basically Brian Reynolds, the guy who designed Civ 2 and Colonization, um, basically splintered off, uh, left Firaxis to start his own company. And I, I had been following the, the developer pretty closely because I was a big fan of Sid's games and also really liked Alpha Centauri, uh, which was made by, by Brian and kind of his, his crew. And so I saw that like Brian left and then like all the other people that were involved in that game also left um, and um, to, to form what became Big Huge Games uh, and eventually to work on Rise of Nations. Um, but 
what it, from the outside, it looked like essentially like it was kind of hard to understand what was going on because basically it looked like Fraxis was kind of like falling apart because <laughs> all their, yeah. all their veteran developers that were well-known were leaving. And so it just, it seemed like, well, I, I have to, I have to find out if I can get a job working on this game because not only is it the perfect game to work on, but there's probably like a huge opportunity here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like the, uh, the coffee boy, right? Like <laughs> they probably need me to do some actual right. work. They just lost all their heavy hitters. You need, they need, they right. need support. There's opportunities here for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, sent to my resume a couple times. It took a while before I, I finally heard back. Um, like eventually so this is just through to, the company website or whatever. You're just like yeah, cold just, sending in the resumes. Okay. Just through the company website. I mean, I was doing that with lots of companies. Like I sent in my, my resume to ensemble and black Isle, some kind of the other companies I mentioned. Um, and you know, most of them I heard back from, but I didn't hear back from Fraxis. So I actually took the time to print out my resume, stick it in an envelope and actually mail it to them. Um, mm. And uh, I heard back later after I got the interview and after, well, after I worked there for a while, that apparently the thing that made my uh, resume stick out to them is that I played the cello. Um, they're, they're, they're a very musical focused company. Um, Sid is, I don't know if you know, but he made this product called CPU Bach, which was like, it was the game, he, the thing he made right after Civ. Um, cause he kind of like at that point had a blank check to kind of do whatever he wanted to do. Um, and he decided to make this program that basically, um, uh, uh, procedurally created new Baroque music. Um, and, but they kind of went through the whole company. Like it seems like half of the people in the company all played instruments of different types and, and whatever, but apparently that's what, that's what initially sparked the, you know, the interest in my, the thing I sent in, um, flew me out to Baltimore, interviewed with Sid, um, and uh you know got the job and what what you know, what I, tell me a little bit about that experience right so so i know i mean i'm also you know kind of huge fan of sid meyer like he's again similar you know just created this sort of genre and incredible games countless great games i've sucked up hours of my life and you had this similar relationship it sounds like to then go and interview with him walk me through like that what that what that felt like and and how did you kind of go into that um, yeah, well, Sid, Sid, fortunately, he's a very, um, he's a very down to earth, easygoing guy. So he's very easy to talk to. And, um, I didn't know if I'd be interviewing with Sid. So I definitely was, was nervous and I'm like, okay, now it's, you know, let's go talk to Sid right now. It wasn't, it wasn't a big company at the time. It probably would have been 15 to 20 people, you know, so I would have mm. met, you know, most of the people who were, there were only at that point, the engineering team was the audio guy and, and a, an intern, a, a guy who was an intern like six months before, right? Like that was their entire tech team at that point. So there honestly wasn't even really that many people to talk to. So I, <laughs> I wonder if uh -huh. I interviewed with Sid just because like, well, everyone, you know, everyone who would normally interview has already left. Um, but yeah, went into his corner office um, and sat down and, you know, he asked me like, very general questions, you know, just like, what are your, you know, what's, I, I remember he asked like, you know, well, what's your favorite game? And I was too, like, I was too embarrassed to tell him my favorite game was Pirates, you know, because it just felt a little too, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know I just, <laughs> sure. it's, it's weird. I don't know. I just couldn't feel like doing it. And so I said, well, I really, really loved uh, Seven Cities of Gold, um, which I also love. Um, and that, that was like, a, turned out to be a very good answer because it led into, the, the discussion of pirates was like, well, actually seven cities of gold is the reason why I made pirates. You know, I made, uh, that game 
that's a game of like discovery of discovering the new world. Right. And that's made him think about like, Oh wow. It'd be really make, you know, it'd be really fun to make a game where you're you know sailing a ship around and you're having all these experiences, but maybe in a, a slightly different time of history. Um, and, but, you know, basically we, we, you know, we hit it off really well and um, you know, I was feeling, feeling re- really good about things and uh, you know, they offered me the job and I, I will say that they, they offered me like, significantly less than every other job offer I got. It was, it was by far the lowest, uh, the worst offer in terms of, of money. Um, and, um, you know, I told them, I, I, I kind of knew I was going to take this job just because I could tell it was the right, it was the, it's the right, it's the perfect job for me. And it's the, the upside of the opportunity was so high. Um, is it just you know, is it just because it. because you loved the genre and you felt like there was more opportunity for you to grow there than the other positions? And that's that's what made it the right job for you. Yeah, base. I mean, it. I I I always wanted to make games about history, right? So it's got it's got that. Um, I um, I hadn't quite. I, I I was really into like war games as a kid. Uh, although that's maybe overputting it because I didn't really have many people to play them with, but you know, I had a stack of like old SPI war games and, and things like that. And I was very aware of that scene. Um, and I would play board games some, you know, like we had friends we'd play a lot of access and allies with and some risk and things like that. But I had not as of yet discovered kind of, you know, Euro games or basically better games, right? Like, you know, it was game games improved significantly like during the nineties. Right. So I, I, I wasn't quite, I, I, it's like, I had all of the, um, what's the right term for it? All of the, uh, raw material to be into kind of like strategy gamey slash board gamey, uh, design. Um, but, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't necessarily put that all together as like, oh, I should really be making strategy games, right? Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't fully understand that yet. But they definitely had the history thing down. I was really big fan of Sid, so like working with him was a big plus. And then the fact that, um, you know, at, at some of the other companies I interviewed at, like, you know, I, I could tell that I would be having a very, I might be working on tools or whatever, not, not necessarily on the project I wanted to. So it just seemed like the opportunity for you know, advancement at Fraxis would be way above everyone else. Um, and I remember I told them, I said, hey, you've offered me this. I'm actually worth this. And I'm going to come back to you in six months and remind you of that. Right. Like I'm <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I know. And you're, you know, once I'm here, you're going to, you know, you're going to like believe that. Um, and uh, that's basically what ended up happening. You know, like, I, you know, I took I took the job. I think I, you know, I bargained it up a little bit. but. Um, but yeah, I eventually went back to them and said like, hey, look, I think I've proven myself at this point. Because once I got, when I got there, you know, I really just, I just dove, you know, feet first in. We didn't have much time on the, on the project. We had, um, there hadn't really been much work done. Basically, someone had taken Alpha Centauri and kind of like swapped the art for Civ 2, like, uh, you know, <laughs> clip art, basically. So it was kind of like... It, like the worst of all worlds, it, like it looked oh, like this goodness. really old mid '90s game, and it was it was all of the old Alvesintari code, which was somewhat useful because you know there's okay there are tiles and there are cities and there are these basic stuff, but it was written in this very kind of strange, um, strange coding style, which very, I mean. The, the path this has all taken sometimes really kind of blows my mind because many years later I got to know Brian. Uh, I did a number of, I did a three part 
podcast series with him where we went over his whole his whole career and went really deep in a lot of stuff. And one thing I found out is that the reason why the code for the CIF3 code base was so strange and it was all based around these weird macros where things were like capital B, capital C, capital T, blah, blah, blah. And you didn't, it was really unclear what stuff meant. And you'd have, you had to, it was like, you know, discovering this ancient tome and, um, some you know old monastery or something um no and no one on on staff had written this stuff so we didn't really know what it was all meant the reason why it was so obfuscated is because um when uh when sid and brian left microprose to form Firaxis back in like 95 or 96 um they left and they started working uh, brian started working on alpha centauri which is a game that's very similar to Civ 2 and colonization. And you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's very much like Civ, but on alien planet. Oh yeah. They, I've, I've played, I've played hundreds of hours. Actually, you know what we should do? Cause I realize these games are so like ingrained in my brain, but right. may, we have younger, we have younger <laughs> right. uh, people listening. Maybe we should give some context here. What is like, what is, let's describe like, what is a civilization as a game? Like the, right. the genre, the differentiated, just so, so people have context if they're, if they're not already f- as familiar with it as, as, as I am. Yeah, so Civilization is a game about all of world history, um, and it's it's much very also very importantly, it's a turn-based game and it's a tile-based game. Like almost all of the mechanics sort of hinge around that. Um, it's it's commonly described as the uh, 4x, uh, you know, this the you know uh, maybe the the birth of that 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 genre. Uh, 4x is uh, exploit, expand, exploit, expand. Explore or explore, exterminate. <laughs> yes. I think I got it. It's also yeah. embarrassing with like, well, you know, like I can't quite name, name them all. But the basic idea is you start small. It's really important that you start with just one unit, like just the settler. And the first thing you have to do is just found a city, right? Because it, because then it's like, okay, everyone can just do that basics, and then everything else kind of like just gets added on. Um, so you know, it's about territory control. It's about having a tech tree where. There are different things unlock. You you know you you invested in research that unlocks more units. And eventually, you're going to have diplomatic issues. You're going to slam into other nations. Yeah, it has it has those type of aspects. Yeah, yeah. This this idea that and it's like why it really does feel like this like great overlap with kind of tabletop gaming and that it's you know you've got the effectively a board. It's turn based, yeah. but it just scales in sort of complexity and scope far beyond anything a, a tabletop game ever should do. Uh, yeah. Anyway, not, um, yeah. Yeah. that's how I kind of explain it to to like people who really aren't into video games. I'm mean, like, okay, imagine like a board game, but like this huge board game you would never want to play in person, but your computer can handle all the stuff, right? It's kind of kind yeah. of a bit like that. Yeah, um, and and it, yeah, it creates this this wonderful like capacity for scaling in that yeah you you start with this very basic all right i've got one city to manage i decide what the city's building and i decide what kind of technology i'm working on and i have one unit to kind of start exploring and see what happens and i can't see most of the map so i'm just kind of learning and growing and then you know by the end you've got like this giant global dominating you know society that can have a you know dozens of cities and all kinds of different tech trees and units everywhere and it's like quite shocking how much you can now kind of control and and most yeah. of the time comprehend. <laughs> yeah. And this is what you just described is really key to like the strength and the weakness of the Forex genre, right? Like the thing that makes it great is this whole, like I started with just like this one cell, this one unit, right. And I'm just growing. And like that, that, that feeling of growth is great. You're like, okay, I want to get that over there, but I also want this over here. And like, I got to balance, you know, whatever, but, but eventually I get that. I want that 
that plane over there with iron. Like I really want that. Because once I get the iron, I can get the swordsman, and then I can go take out the Egyptians, which is really great because they've got the pyramids. And, you know, all this stuff kind of like goes together, and that that feeling of of growth and expansion is really addictive. But the the downside is that um, if you have this game built around just getting more and more and more stuff, at some point the fun kind of starts to disappear because now you just have a lot of stuff. And, you know, when you yes. have the more stuff you have, the easier it is to get even more stuff. But at some point it's like, okay, to what end? Like what's, what's the point of all this? Right. Um, right. Right. Yeah. The fun of the simulation and the fun of the feeling of growth, the, the kind of end games. And, I, and I've seen you actually written, written articles about this, you know, the sort of end games are almost feel like an afterthought in, in a certain sense. Like it, you want there to be an objective. You want there to be, an end, but it, it definitely can get uh, muddy as terms like what that should be and how you that can kind of drive a satisfying conclusion to a game like this. Yeah, you know, it's like the kind of idea of you never, you know, you don't want to, you never want to leave, you want to leave before things get tired, you know, and that's that's something that forexes have a very difficult time doing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's actually a funny thing, you know, just relating it back to the you know my project, like with uh, with my deck building game Ascension, the game you know, uh, ends when the on, there's a pool of honor that runs out. And, and as right. at the beginning, you're pulling very little out of the pool, but as you ramp up and become more powerful and that the deck building games also have this really nice aspect of, of scaling, then you start really like chunking a lot of that out of the pool. And it's always like the, you know, you finish before you really get to do all the things you feel like you could have done if you had just a little bit more time. And so we get yep. the number one request we get from players is always like, oh, increase the honor pool size. Like, do we want more? And I'm like, no, yeah. like you, you actually don't yep. want that. I know you think you want that, but um, so we let yep. people do it in their, you know, they want to play on their own, obviously, or they want to play against, say, I right, go, go ahead, go to town. But in, in a, in a, you know, multiplayer games and extended experience, that feeling of, oh, I just, I want one more turn. Uh, and I think Forex yep. games are just like at their best. They always have that feeling. I've, I've had one more turns till sunrise uh, many yep. times. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the real curse of Civ is that they can't compress his, if you compress history too much, it starts to not feel like the reason why you want to play the game, right? Like, you know, there's, you know, people want, there's these certain eras you can't get around. Like you need that like real early kind of like bronze age era. You need like, kind of like the classical era. You need something that feels medieval. You need like kind of like a gunpowder age. Uh, you need sort of a, um, you need like a world war two phase and then you need like a modern phase, right? But very roughly like, you know, I just listed six phases, six eras. I think that's what Civ, Civ three literally chopped the game up into, into six eras, but, that, but kind of roughly you need all that. And if you rush through any of those too quickly, people feel like, will feel like the game's not delivering that history of the world experience. Right. And yeah. like, literally that can just come down to how many turns, right? Like, like, yeah, okay, sure. Maybe you have swordsmen's then, you know, chariots, then swordsmen's then knights, then, you know, musketeers or whatever. But if if you only get like ten turns to use your knights, then it's not going to feel right because what what was the point of getting them? You might as well might as well just jump forward to the next unit. So um, some games like that's one of the one of the advantages of working on something like Old World, where we could we could have decided at the beginning like okay, we're we're not trying to do all the world history. We could just decide up front, okay, how long do we want the game to be? Right. Yeah. Um, or or Alpha Centauri, which is this sort of right. far future world where we're like, okay, we're on another planet. Tech is all starting right. from you know we can do whatever we want with it, and it kind of opens up a lot more freedom when you're really trying to represent thematically the history of the world. 
it, it you know you're taking on a pretty big epic skill task uh to make yep. it all feel right and even chunking it out into those six pieces is kind of a funny thing but you know make you have to you have to cut the line somewhere as to where you know yep. and at a certain point if i you know when my swordsmen are up against your artillery units it's just like okay this is not working this is kind of weird uh what do i do um yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah, the, I mean, the design of civilization at its core is really kind of audacious. You know, it's it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> really. Right. I mean, yeah. Can, but, can you think of a more audacious goal? I'm going to have you play through the entire history of the world, being able to architect your own society against all the other societies that are out there. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's hard to think of something with bigger scope in <laughs> at its core. So it's it's really, yeah, uh, yeah it's really impressive. So uh, yeah. Anyway, let yeah. Me, let me say one of the things because there's a really interesting, interesting paradox at the core of how Civ came to be. Because you know, Civ Civilization is now on its sixth iteration, right? And if you look at Civ Six compared to Civ One, you have a much, much more complex game, right? Like if you if you played Civ One and played Civ Six, it's it, it would feel like they're almost different genres at this point, right? There's so much more going on uh, after you know each version has added more and more and more stuff and changed more and more things. Um, but I think that I think that Civ One could have only succeeded with a designer like Sid, who like really has a like a a hard tuned eye for uh, for simplicity, right? Like he was re- he he really like just keeps simplifying, simplifying, simplifying things, and um, and you could actually see that in he went back the one time he went back to Civilization was for Civilization Revolution, which was the console version of the game, which is yeah. a a much more simplified version of the game, but is probably at a complexity level similar to Civ 1, right? Um, and I think that if you had taken me, for example, like a later day Civ designer and put me back in 1990, and if I tried to make Civilization, I would have screwed it up. You know, I would have made the game far too complex. And I don't think it would have ever gotten a chance to kind of like get that initial start. And then, and and now it's it's... Now, when you make a Civ game, you're making it in this tradition, right? So it's not like it's great to be making the game more complex, but it's just like the the audience has grown with the franchise, right? And yeah, yeah. Um, there's just this sort of this weird kind of like uh, symbiotic relationship that's been going on that has allowed the game to grow. But it really needed someone like Sid to make that first version. But nowadays, I mean, there's there's no way Sid. Sid would not be able to make a, a like a Civ Seven successfully, right? It's just that's yeah. not the type of game that he designs. I always, anyway, I always find that tension really interesting. Yeah, no, that's fascinating, and I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, to me, like it's always the thing I really try to you know try to train into new designers, and I I it's part of my design aesthetic very strongly just like simplify 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 like what is the core of what's going on here, and how much can you get rid of to really make that shine? And of course, you know certain genres require certain levels of complexity and you can create add-on mechanics all the way through but i just find that 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 heart of it is so important and then kind of tangenting on your other point that as the genre evolves and as the audience evolves then it's easier to use those building blocks to make more complicated things so in yep. the most recent example for me is t- taking a you know 
Ascension Tactics, right? I took the the core of the Ascension deck building game and and basically just layered an entire you know tactical miniatures game on top of it using the same right. system. And yep. if you if you know how to play a deck building game, even especially if you know how to play Ascension, but if you know how to play a deck building game, it's pretty easy to learn. But if you don't, that's like a lot. Like I can't even imagine making a game like that ten years ago, right? Like it would just right. be like way too complicated. So there's this interesting thing that happens where you kind of can build on the on the building blocks of what are tropes that people already know. Um, how much effort do you think, though, about when it does come? Because, you know, obviously new players are still coming into the genre. Um, is it, you know, with with in my world, I would th- assume, OK, I would assume if you've never played a deck building game before, you'll start with something like Ascension before you move to Ascension Tactics. But but in Civilization, it's not like someone's likely to go back and start with Civ 1, right? If somebody's right. a new player, how much thought do you put into that? Or is it just, you know, at the 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 mechanics are so built into society that people will ramp up for it or there's a sufficient tutorial or how do, how do you think yeah. about new player acquisition? So it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, when I worked on, when I, with Civ 3, I didn't really think about this stuff too much. Um, but with Civ 4, like I very specifically thought through, um, okay, if we're going to add something, we should take something out, right? Like I, I kind of had, like, I, I knew that like just on an overall level, there's no way to kind of avoid the fact that, okay, Civ 4 is probably going to, excuse me, is probably going to have more stuff in it than Civ 3, even at just a mechanical level and Civ 5 will have more than 4. Like that is just, there's almost no way to avoid it, but we need to at least do something so that, um, you know, we're not, we're not just bloating the game. Right. So, you know, I had kind of the sense of like, okay, Civ 2 and Civ 3 had this many units in it, this many texts, this many whatever. So we should aim to have a similar number. We're not just going to increase it by 50% or something, right? Because that's just, that list leads down a very bad, very bad, bad to path. Right. Um, so the kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of the, the static count of, of elements of the game was, was fairly similar. Um, we also, you know, cut out things like uh, corruption and, uh, and pollution. And, you know, basically I look for things that were kind of like, well, these were not great, uh, or these were not great game mechanics to begin with. So I'm going to kind of cut some of these things out to kind of clear room for the new stuff. And then I also looked for, um, kind of like what I call like uh trapdoor mechanics, right? Like these, like Civ had these kind of some of these weird, weird rules where, um, uh, you know, because Sid made Civ One in like nine months or something insane like that, right? It's it's you know he wasn't necessarily expecting this to be going on forever, but there are these weird situations where if you didn't have a city producing excess food and you started to build a settler, like either the city would just get caught in a loop forever, or it would actually like disappear when the settler was ready, or there was just a bunch of weird stuff like that. So I wanted to clean all that stuff up, make it make it make it so there is less ways for new players to basically screw themselves over. Right. Yeah. That's really, that's really key. And it's very tricky, you know, especially in games like this, where they kind of like exponentially curve, you know, resources where your, your early decisions have these huge long reaching impacts. It's very hard. I mean, the, the, the the situations you describe are, are, are clearly worst case ones where you literally, you know, kind of sabotage yourself completely, but even just getting a little bit off track can, can really hamper you quite a bit uh, in these kinds of games. Yeah, it's something I worried about a lot where it's like I had a pretty good sense of what the game would look like, you know, 50 to 100 turns in, you know, but but Civ, a full game of Civ is roughly like 500 turns and is like, who knows what the game looks like at that point. It's it's almost impossible, impossible to find out. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, you kind of do the best you can. But there is also a, a flip side to this, which is, you know, in terms of simplification, we also were worried about um, 
I have a phrase for this. There's uh, people who like optimize the fun out of a game. Yes. Um, and uh, like what the, 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 my first kind of like, I mean, I had a number of experiences <laughs> working on a game like Civ where it's turn-based and it kind of rewards players to like overanalyze things. Like I kind of have seen this, this kind of pattern over and over again. Um, but and this is, this is, this is getting into the weeds just to prepare everyone. But like, there's like a very specific thing we did with Civ 4, which solved a problem for a lot of people. But it's like, it's not a problem that you would normally worry about when you first make a game. Um, so let me just explain what I'm talking about. So in, in civilization, when your city is working on something like a temple or a chariot or something, um, it's, there's some sort of production unit. We might call it hammers or shields or whatever, but there's some sort of unit production, right? And there's a box that's going to fill up. And when the box get fill, gets filled up, your chariot pops out, right? Um, so the problem is what happens when the rate that the box is filling up doesn't, like, there is a remainder, right? Like, there's some excess that that at the end of it, right? Like, you're, you have 48 out of 50 production needed, but your city is producing six. So four of those production units are going to get thrown away, right? Well, fine. First time you design a game, you just be like, well, okay, whatever. You know, like, uh, <laughs> that's, just, that's just how it goes, right? But, you know, we we learn from like watching the community and hearing people talk about this, they would go into this long detail list of, of what you need to do every turn. And one of the things you need to do every turn is you need to go through all your cities that are just about to finish something so you can move your citizens around to make sure you don't have any excess production, right? So that city that only needed two, two more hammers, like you got to take their citizens off of the mines and put them on some farms or on some uh, commerce tiles or something so that you get the maximum value from those citizens and you aren't wasting those, those four hammers. Right. Um, and, you know, just as a high level as designer, you, you want to think through, like, I don't want people to be doing this, right? Like this is not an experience I want them to have. And even if they're either, they're either going to force themselves to have this like, annoying experience or they're going to have they're going to play without it but be aware that they're playing suboptimally which is not great either yes yes this is really really key that like there's there's a part and i i i you know i come from a pro card playing background right and so i was one of those players who would i could not resist optimizing everything even though it was way less fun and even when i would design games and i could see it like i had a really cool game mechanic where you'd like flip cards off the top of a deck as like to, as part of the combat resolution for a game. But then what happened was that those min-maxers would then say, okay, well, that means I have to count every card in my deck and know <laughs> right. the exact percentages of what the ratios are left in the deck. And then once they started doing it and their opponent saw them doing it, now their yep. opponent felt Feel they like had they to do to. it. Yep. And so it just it just spread like a cancer of, of no fun throughout the entire yeah. community. And I had to destroy the mechanic, even though it was super fun if you just didn't worry about those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, the players, if they have the opportunity uh, to do so, will do so. So yeah, it's a great, it's a great insight. Uh, and as you put it, they'll optimize the fun out of the game. Uh, yeah. Really, really, really worth thinking through. So okay, great. So how? Did, so you solved this? Uh, you had this problem, and you solved it in Civ Four with your. Yeah, we just we. I mean, it's the simplest thing. We just took the overflow, like the extra four hammers. We just put it in a little box and saved it and applied it to your next unit right and it's like it's just a very you know, it's the simplest solution um but just taking the time to do that freed so many people from this this thing that they were like chained to right yeah. and um 
like to me, I mean, there's 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 a few lessons here, but another key one is, which I'm sure you know, you're you're well aware of, is just how important it is to pay attention to what your community is doing and how how they're actually playing your game, as opposed to like your idea of how they're playing the game. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and and learning from your community on these things is is so critical. You know, again, ideally, you're you're kind of thinking through a lot of the different player personas and you're getting feedback early on in your cycle. But you know, especially once a game is live, you you know, you need to it's it's going to be in the wild it's not going to work the way you think yeah. uh and hopefully you you know you learn and can adapt uh that, yeah. that that ties into another question i have because man when i think about testing and iterating on games you know pretty much any game i work on takes less than an hour to play and so i can get through playtest loops pretty fast uh right playing a game of of civ takes i god i don't even i don't even know how many hours but you know at a minimum dozens yep. Um, yep. and so what does playtesting look like? How do you actually, you know, you said, okay, I know what the game's going to look like on turn 10 or turn 50 or turn hundred, but it's going to go 500 turns. Like you can't possibly be actually playing these things through. What does that, what does that look like? How do you, how do you approach developing a game at that scale? Yeah. I mean, there's not, there's not really a good answer to that. Um, there, but there's a few things that, that we, we would do. Um, I mean, one, which is just a very, partial solution, you know, but it's better than doing nothing is um, like with Sephora, I would, I would set up these AI runs where you just have the AI play itself. Um, and every night, you know, I would, I would run one and in the morning I'd come in and check on it just to give a sense of like, first of all, I was also developing the AI. So that was a very important part of that, right. To see how well the AI is performing, but also just to see how far they're getting through the game, you know, at 500 turns, where are they? How how far are they through the tech tree? You know what what does the what does the map look like? Um, you know, it gives you you something. Um, but yeah, if it comes to actual just the time it takes to sit down, like how many times did I actually sit down and play through a game of Civ Four? Right, like a, a two or three, maybe maybe right. at all. I don't I don't know. I mean, it, it, you know, which of to, to, you know to you know <laughs> how many times have you played Ascension, Justin? Yeah, I can't. I can't count it. <laughs> More than two or three, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably in the in the thousands, I would assume, right? So, like, oh yeah, no you question. Know, you know, it's totally different. And, and there were things I would do. You know, I would, I would. One thing, okay, I'll, I'll give you another one. Is that we actually made Civ Four, and we did this again with Off World Training Company and with Old World. We made it a multiplayer game first, right? Which. That that decision for Civ Four was pretty controversial inside Firaxis, right? Because Civ Three shipped without multiplayer, period, right? It had to be added on as a in an expansion. The first expansion pack was added multiplayer to the game, and that was like that was like the worst technical experience of my life, right? Because mm. um, Civ Three was built just as a single player game, so when you wanted to do something in code, you just did it. Right. You didn't you didn't give any consideration to like, oh, well, are there multiple people playing the game? And like, shouldn't, you know, you, you know, you can't. I mean, <laughs> multiple games work differently. Right. You have to update everyone. You need to you need to if someone takes an action, it should go through a single point so that action can filter out to everyone. I mean, there's just there's just a whole bunch of stuff you you have to do in a, like in, a, in the single player game. Um, when uh, the game asks you to choose something, like, hey, choose your next te technology. Originally in Civ 3, the way it worked is the game would just hang until you made a choice, right? There would just be a loop just spinning, waiting for you to choose that the option from the dialogue. Because for a turn-based game, 
there was nothing else that needed to happen on their machine. But obviously a multiplayer, if one of the players is choosing a tech, you can't just have everyone's game hang, right? Like it's it's a completely different model, right? And going going from one where you you didn't give any consideration to that to going the other way around was just a it was a nightmare. Um, and, at any rate, so I knew up front, that was my initial pitch was like, okay, we don't want to ever do that again, right? So let's just commit to making this a multiplayer game from the beginning so we don't have this horrible technical problem. But the real benefit was that we were able to play games of Civ 4. Uh, I mean, actually, I have played, I have completed like at least tens of games of Civ 4. They were all just multiplayer games with, you know, other members of the of the team. Um, and so, yeah, within like three or four months, we were playing games of Civ 4 against each other. Um, and you know we were able to experience all the all all of the rules and have a, a real opponent, right? Well, why why is that easier, or why was that more effective in terms of being able to test the game than playing it solo, playing an individual game? Uh, because because of the the lack of AI, basically. Um, Got it. You couldn't you know there, because there was no AI. Um, you know, like the rules might be there, but you're, you're essentially you're just pretending to play the game, right? Got it. Um, you know, you're you're making choices, but there isn't really the type of resistance you need to. Right. Without to make that tension, like, there's nothing there. There's just, you know, kind of open ended growth that has no no tension associated yep. with it. Yeah, yeah exactly. that makes sense. Um, so, so. So, yeah. So, yeah. OK, so you were Actually, able to get tested, in, but still it's still still way less kind of reps overall than for, yeah. you know, shorter term yeah. games. So you're you really kind of got to maximize that time. Um, yeah. Any a, other things a couple, that you to do that? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of things worth mentioning. One is, and this is something I didn't do with Civ but did with Old World, which helped a lot, is um, if you if you boot up Old World, you'll see that there's a, a kind of a scenario kind of hidden on a side screen that's called the, the Barbarian Horde. Um, and it's a mode where there is an AI and you just start in the middle of the map and there's just essentially waves and waves of barbarians trying to kill you. Um, and this was essentially the single player version for like once... Once uh, we got the game kind of up and running, that was essentially what single player was in old world for the first year of development, um, uh, you know, beyond the multiplayer, because um, that was still like, a, because that was a viable mode. It, it, it was less interesting, of course, because there's no diplomacy and there's, there's a bunch of things missing, but at least, you know, we were trying to play the game for real, right? Like we, we could lose, you know, you had, right. you had that, that tension there. Um, so that right. helped a lot. And the final thing is with Civ 4, uh, we essentially kind of like did early access before early access, um, just in a in the best way we could at the time, which was um, so with Civ 3, uh, Civ 3 came out. It had been tested the way games were just made back in 2001, which is, you know, you hire maybe eight or 10 testers. You have them play the game a bunch. They they file bugs. They give you some feedback. Some of these people may be experts in forest games. Some of them may not be. Some of them may have just been testing sports games and they're going to try, you know, Civ 3 and then go back to playing sports games. You know, who knows? You know, I mean, that's still going to give you valid feedback, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily going to give you the type of feedback you're going to get from your community. Right. Right. Um, and Civ 3 shipped with a lot of a lot of major a lot of major problems. Um, there's there's at least one unit in Civ 3 that just didn't work. Like straight up, did not work. It was the the uh, anti air unit, and there mm. was literally just a like you know somewhere in the code there was like an if you know if versus air then does the damage and like the 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 not sign was was flipped so like literally did not work <laughs> at all one hundred percent. Wow. 
and um, you know, it's like even even there's there's no substitute for like players who are not professional testers, but are um, genuine people from the community who have a huge amount of passion for your game. There's no substitute for getting them to play your game. And I learned, like, I always say that like my game design education started the day Civ 3 shipped. Because up until that point, I was just basically guessing, you know, I was just kind of like, I was working really hard trying to get the game done, trying to, you know, put some, things put some ideas in that i thought were interesting but i didn't really learn anything until the day it actually got in the hands of, of real players right and that's when i you know became you know i just you know discovered apolitan and Syphonatics and you know all of these these but back then it was forums right there was no reddit or or you know other things like that but this this is where you know i learned about the game that i had i had made um and we shipped four really big meaty patches to Civ 3 where we made really big improvements to the game. Um, and I'm really happy where it ended up eventually. Um, but yeah, it definitely shipped with some problems. And so this was another thing that I was like, I don't want to do that again for Civ 4. And so through that process, I met all of these people, um, all of these, you know, kind of super fans on, on those sites. And I said, Hey, let's, let's start this private group. Well, let's create this private forum, get you guys all NDA'd up. Um, and, get you guys access to Civ 4. Civ 4 was a two and a half year project and we got we got this to them a year and a half before we shipped. So for the majority of the project, we had people playing the game external to the company who were just, you know, volunteer testers giving us feedback on this private forum and giving us a lot of feedback. And I, I, I credit that as probably like the number one thing that led to like Civ 4 being kind of like a, a, a real big success um, was that, that there was just kind of no no way to get, you know, no way to, and it was, it was a pain at the time because we couldn't just let them download or I, I don't, the legal department didn't like this. So we had to kind of like yeah. have a lot of back and forth with them over that. But eventually we basically had to, we shipped them. Every one of them had to get shipped some sort of CD, which gave them like a lock version of the game. And then we were able to, to get them to download this like patch every two weeks. And that was how they updated it. It was so much harder than it is nowadays. Um, but yeah, like just just being able to get that that feedback was so so valuable. Yeah, there is no there is no substitute for your actual target audience's feedback. Um, there's just no you know game designers. We're you know your instincts get better over time as a designer, but you really don't know till you have contact with the enemy. I mean the player. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so uh, okay, well, so there's there's a couple things now just to kind of tell the arc. Uh, you know, so you 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 know you took a job that really you felt was a good match for your skill set, uh, even though it meant making less money, and you set up the expectations up front with your your boss say, Hey, I'm going to take this, understand I'm taking a lower salary and I'm going to demonstrate to you that it's a no brainer that you're going to want to pay me more. Um, which is just a great, really powerful way to be. And I advise a lot of people, you know, even to do work for free, uh, where they can to get in the door and just demonstrate your value and make it a no brainer that of course people want to pay you. Um, and so that's great. And you take over, you know, you, you do great work on the project, you demonstrate your value, you actually see things go, you know, into the wild, uh, you learn from that, and then you move into to leading the Civ Four team and lead designing the project. And you know it's a huge step up at that point. And and you're you've described already some pretty massive shifts that you led in the process, right? To multiplayer first, bringing in external players. You know, working on. Uh, you know, I, I, how 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 did that transition come about? And what you know, talk 
talk me through a little bit what it's like to kind of go from, you know, I'm a designer learning and working with my idols to I'm now the lead of this and I need to, you know, push even for big changes that maybe other people on the team are not, not, not on the same page with. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this kind of goes to a thing that, that, um, it's kind of hard to describe because it's very contradictory, but I think to be able to succeed, you need both like a, you can both need like a really big ego and a really small ego at the same time somehow. Um, like, because the things that I was asking for, I, I didn't mention another thing was that, um, we decide, I, I pushed hard for us to release the source code for Civ 4. Um, like we wanted it to be the most moddable version of Civ ever. Um, and uh, because, you know, modding had become more and more popular throughout that, that time period. Um, and so, you know, we did a bunch of stuff to make Civ 4 a lot more moddable. We moved all of our data into XML, so it had like a standard format. But I also, early on in the project, I said, hey, let's put all of our, all of the game code, meaning not the graphics or the UI or everything, but just the game code itself, let's put it off in this little box here so that if, if possible, we could just release this code out to the community and then they could change the game at the, at the, at the, at the most core level possible. Right. Um, and that of course is another big, big lift to, to run through corporate and legal and get everyone on board. And that, that's beyond the fact that like the Civ uh, light franchise actually got sold halfway through uh, the Civ 4's development. Uh, which was another <laughs> kind oh, of I didn't know interesting process. <laughs> yeah, it went from yeah. Atari to, to Take Two, um, and I'll tell you what, Take Two got a deal uh, in the long run that worked out to be a yeah. very very good deal for them, which is great. I mean, that it was it worked out great, but uh, um, but yeah, like it took it so. You know, these were big things Zach asked for, and like I had to have the. Um, I don't know what's the right term for it is, but just the, like, I believe chutzpah. Yeah, well, that's really, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is like I'm hard to doing the chuh, but yes, that's uh, that's the, the right word. You know, you just have to be like. I'm, there's a little bit of like, um, like you're, you're you if you have to feel like you're a little bit of a uh, uh, what's the right term for uh, a zealot. You know, like like my my opinions are not. You know, I know my opinions are going to be. Um, you're going to appear irrational, to, you know, to some people, but I'm going to have to push for some stuff because I want I want to move things forward, right? Um, and so that's that's true. But the thing is, that that type of a um, that type of personality also needs to be able to balance itself with with also assuming that the actual a lot of your game design decisions and uh, planning and choices you make are going to end up being wrong. Like, like that's, you know, like I always assume that when I'm, when I'm designing something like, okay, this is what, I, this is what I'm doing right now, but it's probably wrong. I won't know until people play it. Right. So you, you have to be able to like, be able to keep both things going on in your mind at the same time. Right. Like I'm going yeah. to, I'm going to be pushing for this, this, some of these really crazy things that we haven't done before. And I'm going to have to change it because it probably is not going to work out the way I thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. Which no, not, I think that's like. It's it's no it's a paradox, but it's like it's actually really powerful. I think most of what is I actually just posted about this recently on Twitter. This thing is like I think that the most skillful way to live life is to be able to hold paradoxical beliefs at the same time, right? Like I take a hundred percent responsibility for everything in my life, 
but I also recognize I don't have control over outcomes and you know, my self-worth is not dependent on that. When you, you know, to be a lead designer or to be an entrepreneur, you have to, at a core level, believe you can do this thing better than anybody else, right? You have to, there's something that you can do that the world is that other people can't, and that you're going to put this vision out there into the world and you have to fight for it, right? Because it's very hard and you have to be willing to take in feedback and recognize that, you know, get your ego out of the equation and realize that, you know, to me, it's always about how can I most efficiently test my most risky assumptions, right? I'm willing to put out assumptions and be clear. Like, I believe this is better, right? In your case, I believe the multiplayer should come first. I believe modding is critically important. I believe we need to have players in things. And then it's like, okay, how do you get to the place where you can validate or invalidate those assumptions or any of your given mechanics, right? And that, I think, is the the kind of balance, the way you you thread the needle between those two extremes is, look, I'm going to fight as hard as I can for the things I believe in and as soon as I'm able to find evidence that shows me I'm wrong, I'm uh, I'm happy to 180 degree and then fight just as hard for the new evidence that, you know, what shows me what, what the right path is now. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of it's hard to it's hard to think through at the time. But I mean, I did have I did, you know, I had a sense, basically. I mean, what kept me going is I had a sense that like, OK, I see a path for Sephora that. I feel like no one else is in a position to like see where we can go with this product better than I. Like I, 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 I believe that, and then I wanted to go through the process of actually making it right. Like you know, and, right. and then and knowing that that's going to have like a lot of unexpected turns, you know, which it did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So amazing. And and, and how big was your team for for Civ Four? Uh, it was probably a- like approximately. Yeah, it, it. I mean, it was kind of a weird process because we didn't really get artists until the last year of the project because they're all work mm. work busy finishing pirates, the the console version of pirates or the new version of pirates, basically. Um, and so we probably had six ish, six or seven core programmers, um, and two like two artists, and then for the last year of the project, we got twenty artists. So mm. <laughs> that's kind of, wow. it's kind of how it goes. It's kind of feast or famine, um, which yeah. actually was fine because I, uh, for a game like this, you don't, you can, you can be, you know, like for a, a good year, all of our art was just little 2d billboards, you know, bopping around this, this 3d map, you know, and that was, that was, yeah. that was fine. Um, some games you really need the, like a, a game that's like kind of real time or involves like heavy animation, like a combat, like a God of War or something, right? Like they fundamentally, they need that, that art to be part of the, the, the prototype, you know, process, right? Where with, right. Like, you know, a turn-based game, we kind of get away from that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so so then, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, Civ 4 generally regarded as you know you know one of if not the best in the genre um really huge huge success and you it sounds like you're you know you're crediting a lot of this with the the process that you built here right that that you know being able to test and iterate in a multiplayer version being able to get feedback from players um are there other things that you'd say were kind of your big wins there i want to talk a lot about modding um so so we can we can dive into that one if that's one of them but but what do you think was was really what differentiated it uh i mean yeah i mean i'll also say i I think i should give a lot of credit to sid and jeff uh jeff briggs uh you know who were you know running fraxis because they did you know i was a young guy a young kid basically and they they did really put a lot of faith in me and just let me do what you know they 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 trusted me you know when i asked to like we should release the source code actually i think what i did is i just kept saying we would 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> I just kept repeating that we would until like eventually it just kind of happened. Um, you know, but uh, nice. so I, I think I think that's definitely worth saying. Um, and sorry, your, your well, question was no, no, that's okay. I, I'll just I'll pause on that lesson because it's another really powerful lesson too, right? Like as like leadership, and there's the one sense of leadership which we sort of talked about, where you have to be able to like be willing to you know put yourself out there and own the consequences and you know, have that, that dichotomy of ego. Um, and then there's this other aspect of leadership, which you're just, you know, Sid uh, just evidence there, which is like that ability to let go and let other people take the lead. And yeah, it's how you grow a company. It's how you grow teams, how you grow, you know, everything. And so that's like not an easy transition, you know, not a lot of people can do it. I know I, fa I've, I wrestled with it a ton. Um, and where, you know, you're like, Oh, I know how to do this. I can do this, but to let somebody else run with it and especially let them run with it in a way that you don't necessarily agree with. Um, you know, one of my favorite expressions from, uh, Jeff Bezos and the Amazon culture is the disagree and commit, right? Like I'm going to give you my opinion. If you don't think it's right and you're the lead. Okay. Like I don't agree with you, but I'm going to do everything in my power to make, give you set you up for success on the path you've chosen. Right. Uh, really, yeah. really powerful, important stuff. So um, anyway, what I was, what the question I had originally asked was about what, what do you think differentiated, you know, what were the biggest wins and insights of CIF4? Uh, why do you think it, it is kind of so beloved even to this day? Um, yeah, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, we finally got, we kind of got multiplayer right. Uh, you know, it was, you, you, could, you could tell that the systems all were built the right way to put this i mean just everything kind of worked together right like it just it just had the iteration needed so that like oh this wonder does this interesting stuff with these specialists which impacts the improvements in this way like you know you could tell that we were we we, we didn't just just get the game out the door you know we had we had gotten the game to the point where we could actually like really polish it you know and think through what we're doing very very intentionally um yeah i think that there was i don't know you know there's Sometimes some some things just escape um, simple categorization, you know, like um, yeah, you know, like getting Leonard Nimoy to do the voiceovers for the text, you know, like I actually spent a oh, lot yeah. of time trying to, get, awesome. trying to get the, the exact right quotes, you know, and uh, uh, you know because I yeah I kind of gathered them over the, over the years from my history background, but being able to you know get him to read them was was fantastic, and um, I mean. Uh, uh, Bobby Etu, the theme song, you know, it was, you know, it was by my uh, college roommate Christopher Tin. Um, ended up winning a Grammy, you know, and like I had wow. kind of like, you know, commissioned that and like, you know, helped decide how the piece should be. And then he wrote this amazing piece. And at some point, like some of this stuff is just kind of beyond the realm of like explanation. Some things is just kind of blessed, you know. Um, and so it was a, yeah, it was, it was a special time. You know, it was really, yeah. it was a really amazing project to work on. Um, yeah, no, it's incredible. And so, you know, uh, I, I, I'm grateful that you made such an incredible thing. And like I said, even if it sucked, made too many hours in my life, they were, they were hours I do not regret. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I think that the, that there's that there's a, you know, there's a lesson here too, right? There's, you know, the, the, even though for a game like Civ where, you know, as you sort of said, the artists all came last, right? Like, it's like all the art and all those things you kind of piled on at the end, but yep. these elements that made it magical, right? It's, it, it, you know, Leonard Nimoy, really great quotes that helped to evoke what was going on with each piece in your history background, like great music, great, like these things really do matter in the scope of, of design in ways that are hard to quantify, but, but they really, it all comes together in a certain way. And I think similarly, you know, everybody wants to design that 
hit game. Everybody wants to design and create the thing that's, you know, everyone's going to love. And and I think I've just learned doing this over the years. Like you just can't ever really predict that. Like yeah. you can set up all the puzzle pieces, you can do everything that's in your power. And then at a certain point, it's just not in your hands. Like you just, yeah. you, so the time is right. The, 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 just the stars align and you know, you have a hit on your hands versus other games where I'm like, Oh, wow, I think this game is better than one of my more popular games, but I don't know, didn't, didn't take off at the same degree, you know? And so there's yeah. just a, 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 again, taking the ego aspect, you got to be able to let go of, uh, of the results sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, this is one of the great lessons of life is that, you know, the, you know, the right, right decisions don't necessarily equal the right results. I mean, if anything, that's one of the great things games can teach us, right? Like, because you have to learn to, if you, if you play poker, you absolutely have to accept that, right? That you, you made the right decision. It just didn't work out for you. Right. And I think that's, that's right. That's like a super, super important lesson. I, I will say one other thing, which is that, uh, and I, I kind of saw this, this kind of got driven home to me um, at, uh, at GDC this year, um, because two of the most successful games, at least artistically, uh, I'm not sure exactly how well they sold, um, uh, from the last year was uh, uh, Josh Sawyer's Pentiment and uh, Sam Barlow's Immortality. Um, and they're both very, very specific games. Like they're they're just super games about um, that the, their you know, designers' very specific tastes and the things that they're most passionate about. Um, so Sam Barlow's uh, in, uh, Immortality is a game about these kind of like three lost films from the 60s, 70s, and 90s. And like it is at his talk, he went into all this detail of like trying to get the exact film grain right so that you could tell that like a 60s film looked different from a 70s film. And, you know, I mean, to me, I'm just like, like, okay, you know, it's like way beyond something <laughs> I would think, but you could tell, like, he just, he has that depth of passion for this, this specific era of film and what it means and moving that into video games. And Pentiment is a game about, you know, early modern 16th century Bavaria, right. And a monastery and, you know, like the, the lives of scribes and how it interacted with the, the, the locals and all of this, this stuff about uh, myth and, and Christianity and um, just, it's 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 a uh, you know it's another game that's just very down the rabbit hole of of Josh's interests um, and the fact that you could tell like they were making the exact game that they wanted to make like it just just really comes comes through um, and with Pentiment you know that's like uh, it's a game uh, about you know early modern 16th century Bavaria about lives of uh, monks in a scriptorium and how it, their lives interacted with the you know town you know the local town and it's about you know, myth, you know, German and pagan myth interacting with Christianity. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's a very, very specific game about a very specific time period that, that Josh loves. Um, and both of those games, you can just tell they're the exact game that the two designers wanted to make, right? It's all about their, their specific idiosyncratic interests, right? And um, Civ, Civ 4 was kind of also in that, that kind of sweet spot for me. You know, it was really just like the exact, type of game I wanted to make from like point of view of like, you know, world history, but also um, I think my, my natural inclination to kind of like board gaming mechanics and transparent mechanics, right? Like that's the thing that I think is also important to mention with, with Civ is that there is this kind of split between uh, like sometimes people compare civilization to a, a games like uh, Crusader Kings or Europa versus Universalis or, or things like that. But those games don't really explain what's going on behind the curtain. Whereas Civ, even though we violate the sometimes, 
it tries to show you how the machine works. Yeah. So there's a couple couple things there, right? One, I think that that idea of of you know designing the game that you're passionate about that speaks to like your core interest, I think is such a powerful thing, right? I mean, you would never guess that you know the games that you describe that those genres would be popular or that you know a board game like Wingspan would be as popular as it is, right? About bird watching. You know, it's like the the power of I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about this topic. I'm knowledgeable about it and I'm gonna let that passion shine through is 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 really great just from you know making an authentic feeling experience at the end of the day, uh by giving you the the sort of fortitude and energy to work through all the challenges that come from game design, right? Like that ability to know because you're passionate about it, you're going to, you know, those extra iteration loops or spending that extra time to make sure you get the exact right quotes for Leonard Nimoy to say, or, you know, all these other pieces I think comes with, with passion. And I find, you know, if I, if I try to build a game that I'm excited about, uh, the odds of my being successful are far greater than if I try to build a game that I think is going to be successful. Uh, I find those rarely work. (laughs) All right, now I really want to talk about the power of kind of modding and community-based creation in games. Um, and I think it's possible, I don't know if Forex Genre was the first to kind of really make this big or not, but it's certainly the one that was first brought to my attention as I saw a lot of really wild um, creations get made. How do you think about that space? It was clearly important to you. Um, what what? How do you think about designing games and designing tools for players to kind of create their own games within your play space. Yeah. Um, I mean, ironically, I didn't really understand it much at first um, because I pretty much had never played a mod um, before. Uh, I mean, I don't know, really never played a mod uh, until Civ 3 and still really didn't play them afterwards. But I became very close with the community and I just saw them talking about mods all the time. And Oh, they, you know, there's this, different version of Civ 2 and there's this version of Civ 2 where you're you know you're Odysseus or you're you know you're Frodo going through uh you know the, the you know the fellowship of the ring or you're this or you're that and like you know here's all these things going on and I was like well that sounds you know interesting um and so you know we tried to push that some with Civ 3 um because um with with Civ 2 they had a very a very good like trigger and event system um, where if you stepped on a tile, something could happen, but they didn't really have a good way to change like the inner, like a lot of stuff was like literally hard coded in the code of like unit number 12 is going to be the archer. Right. And that you just have to deal with that. Um, it wasn't really built to, to be um, what you might call like data agnostic um, <clears throat> that essentially, you know, there, there's this split between, the game engine and the data itself. Um, that wasn't really a concept I kind of understood. And I was kind of led to this by the um, uh, the Age of Empires team gave a really good talk at GDC one year where they kind of like explained this, this kind of like theory of development where, um, you know, the data is this thing that sits on top of your engine and could anything could be changed and the game should still, should still run, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and what, one of the reasons why, you know, game code had would would have a lot of hard coding of like okay this is the temple and it does this is is a, uh, one of the big reasons for that is it's a lot easier to write the ai if that's the case because you're like okay a city starts the first thing you wanted to build is this unit and then if this is the case build a temple if that's the case build a library right it's just a lot easier to write code that way so um but i was like okay what would happen if instead you know, we kind of built a game where we didn't even assume that temples or libraries or chariots even exist, 
Like we're just going to be completely, um, you know, we're not going to take any assumptions uh, into into the game code about what the kind of like the static elements of the game are. Um, and so, you know, we did that. We did that with Civ, we did that with Civ three, so that they could add as many kind of new units and, and buildings and technologies they wanted to. And then, but that was we kind of had like a proprietary editor for that, which which worked okay, but. Um, it meant that every time we wanted to expose something, we had to like basically build UI code to allow people to change it. And so as of four, we're like, okay, let's, let's put everything in an XML file. So every time you add something, you're just adding a new line of XML somewhere. And so then players can, you know, modders can basically just, you know, use whatever XML editor they like to, to, to change the, change the code. And then of course, eventually we released the, the game code itself. And I kind of knew that, Someone would make like a great a fantasy version of uh of of Civ Four because we had already kind of laid down some of the tracks with um the fact that units could gain experience and levels and get promotions um and there was this really great um Civ Four mod called Fall from Heaven by uh, Derek Paxton and really by a team I mean there was like you know maybe fifteen or twenty different people who worked on that project um made this really amazing kind of like uh high fantasy total conversion of of Civ 4 that you know it's hard to judge how popular it was but it's it's you know it would always be discussed in in Civ 3 in in Civ 4 yeah. threads and- I I I played it it was awesome yeah it was just such yeah. a cool experience that built you know this whole world on top of you know the whole fake world on top of the 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 kind of real world simulation that you guys did it was it was really very cool very cool experience yep yeah, I mean it's it's so rewarding to see that as a developer because you know you're kind of laying the the traps and opening the doors, but you don't know really what's going to happen. Um, and when you see people start to play with that and you know put their own creativity in the game and and start to build their own little community around the their their mod, I mean it's just I mean one thing that was really fascinating is just seeing what you know what were called mod mods, you know, which was like someone would would make this change to Sephora of like, oh, I'm going to do this this thing that uh, like maybe with UI modding because our UI was in Python, so people could change that too. Um, I'm going to make this change and someone else does this other mod and then you'd have these mods that would like conglomerate them all together, right? And people would start to pick and choose what they want to. And you'd have modders who weren't necessarily making mods, but they were making these components for other people far, you know, kind of like farther downstream, right, to use. Um, it was this just amazing little kind of like machine to see how, how it all fit together. Yeah. And and so, you know, it shows the dedication of a community and how you've got, you know, that you're, you're, you're creating this whole other form of play where people get to kind of create their own, create their own games within your world. Um, and then there's this interesting kind of, I don't know, this sort of interplay between like how you as a designer, sort of intend a game to be versus how you um, create it so that it is open-ended enough for players to create their own experience. And that could be as simple as, you know, just even in just normal Civ experiences, right? I can choose to build my society one way. I can be very militaristic. I can be very technological. There's a lot of ways to play or in a trading card game that I could, you know, build the deck that I want to build and play. But then there's these, you know, okay, no, no, I'm going to change the rules and I'm going to play this new version of the game. Um, in some cases, explicitly 
adjusting things um, as you would with a mod or in other cases like, you know, magic, the most popular play format is commander now, which is not a thing that was the coast ever intended and even yep. kind of fought against for a little while. Right. So what do you think makes a game more likely to succeed in that space? How do you encourage that kind of behavior from your your players? Like what are the what you know, what what makes a what helps build a modding community if you wanted to try to intentionally craft one for your game? Uh, what are the kind of tools that people should lean on? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's fascinating when players kind of take over a game and start to play it the way they want to. And it's really interesting to see how companies react to that, you know, which ones are, you know, open-minded, you know, to that and which ones like kind of like keep resisting that like, no, no, you're not, you're not playing the game the right way. Um, and, uh, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's always it's all just a process. I mean, I, I definitely kind of feel like if people are playing or people are choosing to play the game a certain way, like then you should really pay attention to that because they're they're they've they've found something there. Like they found like this diamond that you may not have been aware of, right? Um, and you know, you you know that maybe it would have been impossible to to design on your own. Um, I mean, the whole path to to Fortnite, for example, is like a fascinating one, right? Like it, uh, you know, it started as a, you know, Daisy started as a mod for Arma, you know, which then got turned into PUBG, which is like a, you know, a mod that sat on top of that. And then, you know, Fortnite was sort of like a, a you know, like we're adapting a totally different game to follow this other model. And like, you know, the, all these paths, like no one was really planning any of this stuff out, you know, it just sort of, it just sort of happens. Um, and um, but it happens because players are players have found something that they really enjoy. Right. And so like, I mean, by definition, like it's really good to pay attention to that. Um, so I think it requires a certain, a certain mindset. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know what, uh, I'm trying to think what, uh, what's the best thing to, what's the best way to, to dis- describe it. I mean, one, if you can make it so people can share mods, like that's obviously, anyway, you're about to say something. No, well, I think it's, I think that, that, you know, there's, there's, there's listening to your players and being able to, you know, if, you know, it's from one of my kind of models, like when in doubt, make player instincts correct, right? Like if you think a game is supposed to be a certain way, but players tend to always do a certain thing. Well, that means you need to either make that the right thing to do, or, you know, you need to kind of change the nudges in your system so that that's no longer their instinct. Right. And, and so a lot of times just following the path of the fun, letting your players take you there is, is totally reasonable. And, and, and letting people, you know, have that experience and giving them the tools to do so, I think is, is great and super helpful. Um, and, and I think these kinds of Forex games kind of lend themselves to it because they're just so expansive. There's so much kind of scope built in. And then, yeah. you know, similarly, you know, you were, you were one of the senior designers on, on Spore, uh, which is not a game I spent, uh, as much time playing, but I was fascinated because like, man, you think like the scope of like an entire history of civilization is, is big. No, well, okay. No, how about like all civilizations on every possible planet you can imagine? It's like a pretty wild, uh, pretty uh incredible uh uh incredibly expansive concept uh maybe we could talk a little bit about that uh too as a as a kind of next transition point sure um yeah let me actually just park my one thing so one thing to point out also about modding is i'm kind of curious how this would fit in with with games like magic and ascension because you know they have a very different the business model is kind of very different and it's, it's 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 maybe a little more tricky for for modding but like with 
with uh, with Civ three, the most popular mod um, for that game was this thing called Double Your Pleasure, which is like essentially the um, it's like the 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 I don't want to use it. It's like the simplest way to make a sequel to Civ two, which is like, let's just double the number of units and double the number of technologies and double the number of improvements. Like it, it was the maximalist version of a sequel of like, okay, mm. great. You gave us some new stuff, but what we really want is even more stuff. And, you know, we, we'd already talked like maybe an hour ago about like why that's not a great thing, but not a great thing for whom, right? There are some people out there who that's exactly what they want. Right. And yep. so, Mods mods give you like this release valve for people who have that very specific interest. Um, and and there was this other really interesting mod for Civ. Well, I forget now. I think it was both Civ 3 and Civ 4. Uh, Rise of Civilization. It's a pun on his name. But at any rate, it's, uh, it was a very like hardcore game. Like you couldn't even cross the desert until you like discover the certain technology. And it was really trying to pushing the game to like have more of a historical uh, playthrough, which is you know civ is a lot of things but if you play a game of civ it doesn't really look like this through the world really right um, <laughs> yeah but you know it, it it was this was a really cool mod for people who actually wanted that experience it's something it allowed modders to do things that fraxis couldn't really do commercially if that makes sense yeah yeah well that's where like giving people the opportunity to play the game they want to play when they're in that niche audience is 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 a is one of the powerful things about modding or like you know we'll do this in you know in games like ascension where we'll have like you know variant rules or you know kind of different challenge modes that people can can adopt right like there's a solo play variation and there's you know different ways that people can play the game or you know we designed the game such that in general like every two sets that we released were designed to be paired together but otherwise you were kind mm -hmm. of we envisioned you'd play them alone but in the app you could just shuffle everything together all at once which yeah. is kind of a crazy mess experience but it's also kind of fun right especially if you know right. you know the game and you're just kind of looking for like okay whatever random stuff's gonna happen and it's fine right and so like the the you're fortunate enough when you have a big enough audience and enough of a kind of content pool that you can let people kind of craft their experiences, you know, individually, um, even though as you design a game, you need to be much more um, ruthless when it comes to cutting out complexities and cutting out a lot of the kind of niche potential appeal when it comes to your, you know, the core experience, you're going to kind of get out of the box. Um, but yep. but giving people those options, I think is part of what the kind of modding community is. And I, I think there's yeah, I always wrestle with this stuff when I make games in in the terms of like the rules I choose to present to the players because right. you know there's it's just there's a there's a you know quote unquote right way to play where you present them the rules and this is what it is but that's not going to be the best experience for everybody you so giving them the option to do other things is valuable but most people won't go down those roads right so you just kind of create those little pockets for people to find as they get deeper and deeper into the gameplay experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always wondered, like, especially in, in concerns to like magic, like, I mean, there's been various different versions, digital versions of magic, right? And they're all kind of built around kind of like an ownership model, right? Of you, have, you know, what cards do you own and which cards do you not own? But obviously, it would be trivial for them to just be like, hey, here's this like practice mode. I mean, I don't know, maybe this stuff exists. You tell me. Like, this is this just playground mode where you flick a switch and you know every card ever made of magic and you can just do whatever you want to, right? Or you can, you know, you can create your own cards. Um, but I assume that, like, that could run, you know, <laughs> in conflict with their their business model, basically. Um, and, 
you know, I've just always assumed that that like that would be a tricky, a tricky situation. Yeah. So so now, yeah, again, it, it's you're right. And there's a lot to unpack there. Right. So it's like for, you know, with Ascension, for example, we actually mm-hmm. you can absolutely print your own cards. We have a thing. You go to stoneblade.com and there's a link where right. you can actually custom create your own cards and we will print them and send them to you. Right. You could just oh, do that's, whatever that's experience cool. you want. Right. So it's yep. like a really fun part of the thing. It's like, oh, cool. Like I want to customize my experience. Right. But also yep. we're not trying to buy, we're not trying to get you to do repeat purchase with that game either. Right. You buy a box and you, you're, you've got it, you yeah. know, maybe you buy an expansion, but, um, but when it comes to, you know, these kinds of, uh, with collectible games or even, you know, take, take uh, Soulforge fusion, for example, where it's like this whole other model of algorithmically generated games where part of the fun is intended to be this process of like, okay, I've got to work with this limited pool of what I have. Yep. And if I yep. just could literally custom craft exactly the deck I want, it kind of takes away from the fun. In fact, I know this because that's what we would do to play test. You want to talk about, you know, things you can't possibly play test, you know, in Soulforge Fusion, there's over 10,000 unique possible cards and then more deck permutations and, you know, grains of sand on the planet. There's no way to test them all. It's not even close. So you just, we would kind of cheat and just like custom build the deck we want. And it's actually just way less fun than, you know, forcing yourself to kind of interact with what's there. Um, so when it comes to these things like the, you know, magic playing with a perfect collection, I think it's less so because, you know, when I, if you're playing at a high level, you pretty much, you, you, you generally simulate that, right? You just, you can just buy whatever card you want. Uh, right. And there's plenty of kind of third party things that exist that are not totally kosher where you can, do, you can do that. Um, right. um, yeah, but I think it's, it's a, there's an interesting balance there when it's, you know, okay, well, I could create my own cards for fun and play those kinds of fun games, which I think is just pure, generally speaking, pure upside, right? Letting players kind of have that experience uh, versus the like, okay, I have access, the the collection process of a game is entirely taken away from me, um, you know, and then I'm just, I, I'm just there. Like, you know, you started even starting a, a game like World of Warcraft at max level, like, is that better? Like, maybe but you lose like that whole progression experience and and so there's a there's an interesting tension there i think yeah the uh yeah soulforge fusion is an interesting example because you know you're i mean the idea is there's like one like there's one f- for each deck there's like one physical copy and one digital copy is that kind of the right way to put it like they're they're linked right and so correct you know like that's just a core part of the concept um right so yeah, yeah. Be, and as yeah. far as I know, we're the only game that works that way, right? And it's 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 where there's a you know this one to one correlation between a physical collectible and a and a digital collectible, and that you can you have in your account. And I think there's something very cool about that, um, and it's part of like what differentiates the game from other things. But you know, of course, I can imagine people just wanting you know, as yeah. a general rule, players want to have all the things. Uh, they want yeah, to have yeah. all the freedom. They complain about magic because they of mana screw, but in reality, you know the that 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 probability curve and having to manage that is part of is what makes the game fun in the first place. And you know this this, but I think that the I think that the collectible aspect, specifically with trading card games, part of why I made you know Richard and I made Soulforge Fusion the way we did is because like the 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 original idea of a trading card game when it was like, okay, I'll buy some packs and I'll build the deck out of what I have. And I'll play against my friend who has their deck of what they have. And, and when I open a new pack, I'm discovering stuff that I'd never seen before. Like that was exciting. And nowadays with, you know, the internet and just everybody just kind of being able to buy in whatever cards they want on eBay or custom buy their collections like that is largely gone. So the fun of collecting is, 
is just for most people that doesn't that doesn't exist nearly in the same way it used to be. Um, that's where like you know games where you play with a limited card pool like drafting and sealed have an appeal. So trying to get at that fun part where the you know you're not designing just the game of like what do I do when I play you know a game of sulfur fusion or game of magic, but the the game of kind of managing your collection and acquiring new cards and having that experience itself be fun. The discovery of that uh, I think is a really important piece. That again, if you give to sort of you know if you give people all the tools you would actually take the fun away uh whereas you know so it's, it's sort of a an interesting kind of tangential point or maybe counterpoint to like how much freedom you give in the modding community in this yeah. world versus others so it, it's kind of interesting yeah i mean all of my instincts about a lot of these issues are honed over you know like basically you know a couple decades of work making mostly 4x games right and like it's a super important point for all designers to know is that like every genre and format has its own kind of like quirks of like what works well for your audience or it doesn't right um and um some stuff some stuff you know travels some stuff jumps from one genre to other some stuff doesn't you know some stuff you have very different needs for the players um yeah well it's one of the things i love about doing this podcast because i get to talk to people of all these different genres and yeah you're you know it's hard to hard pressed to find a better expert in 4x than than you but and so it's really great to kind of mine that interest and you know cross cross references with my areas of expertise and everybody else i get to talk to it's like sometimes you know crossing over one of those things is like incredible because you can take an insight from one genre and you know bring it to another and other times you're like well nope that does not apply here (laughs) yeah I'm curious. Is, is I know I know how popular, for example, Commander is. Like, is that have they rolled that into like their digital version of Magic? Um, I don't believe so. It's not. I, and I think it's just not. They don't. Uh, Magic Arena doesn't support multiplayer. At least, or if it, I haven't played it in like a year, so maybe it's changed. But it, last I last I checked, they did not support multiplayer, which is intrinsic to the to the fun of Commander. Uh, and so there's a. Um, they have, you know, they've released cards over time and they may have introduced the, you know, some of the mechanics, but I don't think so. Last, last I checked, they did not. Right. Okay. Um, doesn't support so, multi, you mean, doesn't support more than two players. Correct. Yeah. Sorry. That's what right. I, yeah. yeah okay. Uh, <laughs> For a second, I was like, hey. doesn't support multiplayer. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Sorry. In the, in the TCG world, it's assumed that you have one opponent, uh, yeah. by, uh, by default. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's actually very so that's actually very telling like one of those it's such a core assumption you would never even discuss it you know um, right right no yeah well and and, it's, and there's there's successful variants of the genre right whenever you i love challenging your core assumptions right like you know the, like the the kind of roguelike deck builder genre like slay the spires uh and that kind of ilk was all about that right where it's like oh no no, no this is yep. designed to be a single player experience whether or not they they tack on another you know some multiplayer modes or whatever it's really yep. like no no we're you don't have an opponent you're it's all designed to be single player what does that mean what's that let you get away with what kind of new space does it open up and it's like it's fascinating so yeah. I, I i think a very often like challenging those those core assumptions right like is it you know i i i love i love 4x games and general but i don't play them anymore because i don't have that kind of time in my life right i want right. what would it look like is it possible to make one of those games that like could be played in an hour to three hours like what does that look like and you know some of the right. the the console version was was a big step in that direction for for civ but the you know what what is there ways to get at like the core of what's here and and challenge uh, you know one of the fundamental assumptions I, I love starting design processes like that yep yeah well that's a, it's a big challenge for forex games because like sorry it's uh 
you, you definitely want to, I mean, we shortened old world a lot. Like, you know, we, we try to try to make every decision. We try to get rid of like the non-interesting, try to get rid of decisions that were interesting. Right. Um, there aren't turns where you just hit and turn to like jump through them. Like that never happens in old world, but on the flip side, to some extent, like the length of the game is core to like the Forex experience. Like if, you know, you can't really have an epic experience if it didn't actually take you at least like a few hours, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's tricky. Um, I think there's, there's sort of like the tensions of a Forex game could work in other settings. Um, there's a pretty good game called Polytopia. I don't know if you ever played that. Um, uh, that's a, it's, it's, it's mostly a mobile game, but you can play it on PC, but they've really boiled down like for a Forex game to, you know, like kind of like this 30 turn, you know, less than an hour experience, you know, and it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting game, but it doesn't, it just doesn't scratch the same itch. You know, at some point you're like, okay, this is fun for what it is, but it's not necessarily what I would think of as the Forex game. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's boiling those things down. I, I haven't played it, but now I'm going to uh, check it out because it sounds cool. Um, boiling those experiences down where it's not necessarily trying to target the same, you know, audience per se, but you'll capture some of that audience and potentially a new audience. Right. I think about um, Marvel snap. Uh, we had, had yep. been broed on the podcast and that, you know, that's another one of those where it's like, okay, it's not nearly as deep as, you know, the traditional trading card game experience that you would expect, but it's got enough of that element to it. And it's able to hit this whole new audience because it's boiled it down into like, you know, super bare bones essence of it. And, you know, wrapped it in a, in a, you know, nice candy shell uh, and yeah. uh, it's done. Yeah. So I think there's, there's opportunities for genre bending in these yeah, kinds Marvel's, of spaces. Marvel Snap's a really interesting example because the, to me, they just took this one very specific constraint. I mean, they got it from, yeah, they, you know, that they kind of picked up from Airland Sea of, of like, okay, we're just going to commit to simultaneous play, right? Like that, that both players take their actions at the same time. Right. And obviously that removes a whole bunch, that takes a whole bunch of things off the table that you can no longer do uh, for your game. But the, the, their, the benefit of that is huge that you just, you know, you have roughly probably 40% less waiting time than you would in a game of even like Hearthstone, which still goes pretty fast, right? Um, right. And like, just by committing to that, like, okay, that this is how our game works, period. Now let's, that, let's you know, let's build everything else around that. You know, it's it's you know, I, I think they've got a lot of a lot of their success based off of that choice. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and, and again, just taking something that, you know, it's not that far different than what we're talking about here. Right. Taking something that was, you know, a game of magic maybe takes 30 minutes, maybe 20 and then game of hearthstone takes seven minutes and you know game of marvel snap takes two minutes right it's like a yeah. it's a it's a pretty dramatic <laughs> yeah. jump down to try to capture I'm, those things and so is it crazy yeah. to say i can take a 4x game that would take 30 hours and you know compress it down to to one or two it's not yeah. impossible but polytopia is a, it's a pretty good analogy to kind of like what what snap did to magic i mean it's it it, it cuts so much stuff off that you that there's a there's a little bit of like oh man like there's literally just one currency for everything right and it's 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 so stripped down but you know it does still hold together kind of like the way the way snap does um, i would love to know like what's the next level down from snap like what's <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah what's the I, don't 10 know. Second, I don't know 10 second game of magic but uh yeah i mean there maybe. are there are card there are card battlers you know out there but i i don't i think that they and and, and snap sort of starts to get into that space a little bit but it's not right. you know those 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 break out of the genre to me too much to to be 
to be counted, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sliding scale, not a bright line. Yeah. So maybe there's I mean, something some else point, there. Yeah. At some point we broke the four minute mile, but I don't know if we'll ever break the three minute mile. Right. Like it's just one of those things. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. There, there, there is, there may be hard limits in the world that you can't get past, but you know, it's, that's, it's just like designing to constraints is just another great principle in general, right? Like finding something where you're like, all right, I'm going to take this hard line thing. That's not easy, yep. but gets me some advantages. And I'm going to build around that and really spend a lot of time wrestling with it. Cause even if you don't end up landing where you think you can, you know, it, it really, the amount of innovation that can come out of that is, is really powerful. Like if people think that, you know, creativity is about open-ended exploration and, it, and it's really generally speaking, not it's working with, with constraints to force you to come up with novel solutions. Yep. Absolutely. Um, we, maybe need to wrap it up. Um, but yeah. I also would be, I'd be fine to, to do another part if you'd like at some point, that'd be fine too. I, I, I would, I would love that. I, I've, there's so much extra content. I have so many notes here that I want to talk about with you. So, so <laughs> I appreciate we've already gone over with some, uh, so, so like I, let me just, uh, before this, cause, um, we'll, some people will, will definitely be breaking this into a second episode. Um, for okay. people that want to find more about you, uh, if we're going to, uh, you know, connect uh, and uh, and find things, I know you have your your designer notes. Uh, where can people find your writing, your thinking, your stuff? There's sure. a lot of great content you put out there. Yeah. So uh, I have a blog, designer-notes.com, um, which which kind of links to everything else. Um, got the podcast, designer notes, uh, and I'm a Twitter at Soren Johnson. Um, so. Pretty much that will be where you'll be finding you. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, well, so I'm definitely, uh, we're going to schedule another uh, another time to have another talk because there's so much great stuff here. I've really enjoyed, I appreciate all the time. And uh, now I'm beginning to see why your your podcasts are uh, are much longer than mine <laughs> uh, in general. So I, uh, I, I love it. All right, so thanks so much. And we will uh, pick this up again in a part two. All right, excellent. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.